Okay, good afternoon everyone and welcome to the webinar on cloud storage and digital preservation. Uh, we'll start with a few words of welcome from Emma Markovitz from the National Archives. Over to you, Emma. Okay, thank you. Um, I was just going to say how pleased we are that we've got such a good take up for this webinar and how much it really shows that there's clearly a need for training and guidance in this area. Um, the guidance itself will be published uh, shortly um, and we'll obviously let you know when, when that's out and ready to read via the usual channels, the archives listserv and, and our own website and so on. But thanks again, everyone, for your interest. I uh, look forward to hearing what the particular questions and queries are, because I think that will help us greatly as we move on to think about um, continuing support in this area. And it uh, just uh, leaves me to hand over to the experts, um, starting with Neil Begree, who was the lead author on the guidance and will be leading the webinar. OK, thank you very much, Emma. Good afternoon, everyone. As Emma was saying, my role will be presenting um, and leading on the presentation, but you can ask questions uh, for the panel, which myself, Paul Miller, Andrew and Emma, at any point during the webinar. So at this point, I would just like to introduce uh, the consultancy team that's compiled the guidance, myself and Daphne Charles from Charles Beagry Limited, uh, Paul Miller from Cloud of Data, Cloud of Data Andrew Charlesworth, who is reader in IT law at the University of Bristol. So in terms of a, an overview of the webinar, um, we want to start by explaining why it is important, important now and why we've produced this guidance at this time. Uh, we'll give you a quick overview of the guidance and case studies, uh, an overview of cloud services and storage legal issues, and digital preservation in relation to cloud storage and conclude with some thoughts on the potential, the challenges and key outcomes uh, for archives. The purpose of the webinar is to give you a brief overview. You will find more detail in the guidance and the case studies uh, when these are released on the TNA website. So why cloud storage and digital preservation now? Well, first of all, the UK government has released a cloud-first policy uh, and mandated for central governments that in IT procurement, um, central government organizations need to consider, at least consider, cloud-first as, as an option. They also strongly recommend uh, cloud to the rest of the public sector. Digital preservation, of course, is becoming a strategic interest also for the archive sector. We're seeing increased digital content being deposited or created by archives. And cloud is a potential component of preservation solutions for that digital material. We can see emerging specialist cloud preservation services and some of the established generic public cloud services are also increasingly useful uh, to archives. Perhaps most importantly, there is pilot activity using cloud storage now in the archive sector and the opportunity for shared learning, which we're taking by developing the guidance and the case studies and sharing them with you and via this webinar. 
there are more options now uh, for the archive sector. It's not just public clouds. Uh, you can also have private clouds which can be implemented be, uh, behind your own um, uh, on your own network and behind your own security. There are hybrid options where you can consider local storage with um, public cloud. And indeed, there are community clouds emerging, which is uh, specific for individual sectors. Finally, obviously, everyone is uh, suffering from financial pressures still uh, in the archive sector, and there's growing interest in shared services, uh, which cloud can help to enable. So in terms of the guidance and what will be in it uh, when it is released, um, we provide an overview of cloud storage, issues like digital preservation, security, uh, the legal issues and costs. There is a step-by-step -step guide taking you through developing the business case, the service options and the types of provider who will be available to you, and some of the procurement options including things like G Cloud, which is available for the public sector. We outline some of the future developments and direction of travel in terms of cloud services. We provide a summary of current best practice, which may be helpful for you in thinking about procurement and development of your own local implementations. And we provide a section on further advice and guidance with an annotated bibliography, detailed discussion of other relevant studies which have been done on cloud and archives, uh, relevant standards, and we provide five case studies which are linked documents to the guidance. Finally, there's a detailed discussion, a set of tables on the legal issues. So the case studies have been selected to illustrate implementations by archives in a range of sectors, range of deployment options such as public, private, hybrid and community clouds, and indeed service providers. The first five of the case studies have been compiled as part of the guidance, and the sixth uh, at King's College London is a pre-existing case study uh, of a pilot implementation using GeoSpace. So first case study around from the Archives and Records Council Wales Digital Preservation Consortium is a pilot project running in Wales which has been looking at hosting Archivematica in the cloud and using Microsoft as a, as a cloud storage option for those archives. Very interesting example, I think, of an emerging uh, community pilot and some of the issues involved in that. The second case study is from the Dorset History Centre, uh, a local government archive, and that has just started a 12-month pilot of Preservica Cloud Edition. The third case study is from the Parliamentary Archives, and the Parliamentary Archives has been using Preservica Enterprise Edition and combining that with uh, two uh, public, uh, public cloud service providers and their own local storage. So that's quite an ex interesting example of a hybrid solution using uh, local storage and public cloud. Uh, the Tate Gallery has been using Archivum Oscar, which is a private cloud installation uh, remotely managed 
by Archivum, a service provider. And finally, we have another private cloud, the University of Oxford, who provides private cloud services uh, to academics in the university uh, for research data management and managing other digital assets. Quite an interesting example from Oxford University in terms of some of their charging policies as well uh, for supporting that. So those are the case studies that you will find uh, with the guidance. It's probably worth saying, as uh, I mentioned earlier, that a number of the uh, case studies are actually running pilots. Those are still uh, in progress. So we are looking to produce a second edition of the guidance to disseminate case study uh, updates in the spring of 2015. And we will also include uh, within that updates to some of the service provider offerings, which are expected over the course of the next 12 months. There will be a second webinar focusing on those up updates in spring 2015. And as many of you will be aware, there's a second edition planned of the DPC Digital Preservation Handbook. Uh, planned to be developed over the next two years and hopefully fully released in 2016. And we're looking to integrate the uh, cloud storage and digital preservation guidance into the handbook alongside its wider treatment of digital preservation issues uh, as that work is completed. If you are interested in keeping up to date with those sort of developments and releases, then as Emma mentioned at the beginning, we would encourage you to subscribe to Digital Preservation and the NARA Archives announcement email lists on GISMail, and of course to the TNA blog via its RSS feed to keep up to date with announcements. So uh, moving on to discussion of cloud services, I think it's important to stress that it can be very difficult to give a concise definition of, of what constitutes cloud. And most definitions have really uh, done so by, by providing a set of characteristics. One of the most widely quoted definitions of cloud services was provided by NIST in 2011. And it provided that definition but in terms of five characteristics of the cloud. So it has on-demand self-service, broad network access, there is resource pooling between uh, different clients, it's rapid elasticity in terms of being able to increase or decrease provision as needed, and there is a measured service, use of the resources metered and users are charged on that basis. It's important to say that things which can be called cloud or cloud services can have all, most, one, or indeed none of these characteristics. Cloud or the term cloud has been applied to a very wide range of different types of service. So cloud storage uh, encompasses many different things. Uh, not all of them are relevant today. Agility is usually the biggest benefit, the ability to start things up quickly not cost, but you can make savings, and certainly for small and medium-sized archives, cloud services might make digital preservation activity practical in ways which it may otherwise not be. It's worth saying that sort of flexibility of the cloud, its agility, 
but obviously uh, poses some issues in terms of management, uh, in terms of an archive thinking of long-term storage. And I'll say a little bit more about that uh, later in the presentation. There's a lot of hype. Some of it is definitely true, but cloud is not the answer to every IT problem. We recognize that it has a tremendous potential for archives, uh, but it may need to be combined with other solutions in terms of IT infrastructure. So it's important to say uh, the sort of public cloud services, it's not just Amazon. Uh, there are a wide range of providers now in this space. Indeed, it's not only in America. American companies are operating data centers in Europe. But we also have local European companies, such as GreenCloud in, in Iceland, as one example. So it's a wide geographical coverage in terms of data uh, data centers. Those generic uh, cloud services provide building blocks for resellers who can be more specialized and provide services targeted uh, more at the archive sector and for digital preservation. And here be lawyers, inevitably. Uh, it's important you consider risk assessment as part of your procurement and implementation of any cloud, sto uh, cloud storage service. There are obviously legal requirements uh, relating to the management, preservation, and storage of data. You may have legal requirements arising from obligations to or from third parties in terms of the copyright in uh, digital content deposited or data protection issues. And you need to consider the risk issues relating to external service providers generally or cloud service technologies or services specifically. And think about the allocation of responsibility and risk. Develop appropriate contractual and service level agreements to address elements of the risk. And indeed, we give examples in the guidance of how some archives have dealt with uh, some of the more typical risks in terms of outsourcing. So some of the archives in procuring uh, uh, cloud storage services have uh, either undertaken risk mitigation like uh, requesting an escrow copy with a third party, uh, syncing uh, to a, a copy to their local storage, or have um, procured uh, two cloud storage services in tandem so that they have a, a diversity of commercial provider and underlying uh, technologies. So in terms of digital preservation itself, I've given you here a definition from the Digital Preservation Handbook of digital preservation as the series of managed activities necessary to ensure continued access to digital materials for as long as necessary. Beyond the limits of media failure and technological change, this is a typical definition, but I think it's important perhaps to update that and include uh, the risks from organizational change as well at this point. You can see digital preservation as a set of activities and responsibilities over time. And perhaps a good metaphor for digital preservation is the transfer of responsibilities and content over time. You can perhaps think of it, as, if you like, as a baton or relay, relay race uh, with the transfer of content and responsibilities. So I think it's also important in terms of thinking of the uh, digital rec electronic record life cycle. Uh, 
uh, if you think of the typical life cycle of creating the record, organizing the record, storing and archiving the record, and release or access, we're specifically focusing the guidance on the archival storage. Uh, but obviously, um, a cloud could be used in all of those, those areas uh, for archives in the longer term. Some of the reasons why digital preservation is important to, uh, to archives at this current time is that we're seeing an increasing volume and diversity in the digital record um, being deposited or created by, by archives. Digital preservation is still often small scale or to be put in place. Most archives are small or small part of large ones. Uh, we need to support specialist digital uh, activities uh, for archives and cloud may help with some of those activities both now and in the future and we definitely see a potential role um, for the cloud uh, in digital preservation. So in terms of service providers in the guidance we divide uh, between the generalists, if you like the public cloud, uh, providers like Amazon, Rackspace and others and then a growing group of specialist niche service providers which are particularly relevant to the archive sector. And we have um, providers such as uh, Preservica, Archivum, Archivit, which is a service run, uh, offered by the Internet Archive specifically for archiving web content. Uh, Jura Cloud, uh, provided by JuraSpace, currently only in the US, but it may well be available in due course in the UK and Archivematica, which is uh, an open source um, digital preservation system which has had a, a trial cloud deployment uh, recently in Wales, as I mentioned earlier. So the specialist service providers can take some of the generalist cloud uh, provision. Uh, they can help you with the additional effort around security policies and preservation tools integration with local management and access tools, so things like uh, accessing your cataloging system. And they can provide some of the uh, designs for failure, as I mentioned earlier, some of the issues that we face uh, in terms of needing to think about the flexibility and rapidity of cloud storage, but the matching that to the long-term needs of archives. None of uh, this these sort of issues are impossible for archives to implement. Um, we give examples of emerging priorities and practice, a snapshot in the guidance, and examples of successful implementations and pilots uh, in the case studies. So another important area we cover in the guidance is around certification audit. Probably one of the most established areas of certification and audits around cloud security, uh, particularly ISO uh, 27001, Information Security Management Systems, uh, which is an ISO standard against which cloud service providers uh, can uh, be audited. Um, we also cover more specific uh, levels of certification, things like business impact levels um, for government information, and things like the EU Agency for Network and Information Security um, provisions for cloud security incident reporting and suggested best practice for the sector.
Uh, there are also emerging certification uh, processes for digital repositories such as ISO 16363, uh, the data seal of approval and DIN in Germany for criteria for trusted digital repositories and these emerging certification and audit uh, procedures for digital repositories obviously may provide the building blocks in the longer term for us thinking about uh, archive certification or digital archive certification. So some conclusions uh, before we move to the question and answer session. Some of the potential for archives from cloud services. Well, first of all, cloud services can provide professionally managed digital storage and integrity checking. Uh, archives can add tools tailored for digital preservation requirements via specialist vendors. There can be potential cost savings uh, for archives, but perhaps the key benefit may be enabling activity, digital preservation activity for smaller archives. Perhaps other options uh, will be just uh, very, very difficult uh, to, to implement. A particular benefit is the flexibility and low cost of some of the cloud prov uh, providers allows relatively rapid and low cost testing and piloting of different providers and enabling you to develop uh, and recognize your needs in terms of longer term procurement. There's also much greater flexibility and more options in the deployment of cloud services. As I mentioned earlier, it's not just public cloud, there's potential for private, hybrid and community clouds and there's much more uh, uh, flexibility and options than before. In terms of thinking of the challenges that are still faced, that cloud is designed for flexibility and rapid change. Obviously archives however are longer term and we need to think much more carefully about the managing of the external service providers and, and how we can fit that into a longer term framework. Uh, cloud can be cheaper, but it requires you to think differently about the ways budgets are managed. As I mentioned earlier, it can be uh, many of the uh, uh, public service providers meter usage. So it's very different for it's uh, uh, an ongoing cost. It isn't something perhaps so much in terms of your capital budget, but you need to be thinking about the revenue budget and how that will support. Um, some of those uh, provision. Some of the specialist providers make it somewhat easier for archives by providing uh, annual service plans and, and with known costs for fixed amounts of storage. As in any form of outsourcing, as we mentioned earlier, you need to exercise due diligence in assessing and controlling the risks. You need to ensure that the legal requirements will be met in, in, your service provide, in your service provision. And explicit provision uh, must be made for predefined exit strategies should you need to move to another provider or indeed if their viability changes. And again, I mentioned some ways that some of the archives have tried to deal with that issue specifically uh, earlier in the webinar. So in terms of some of the outcomes, uh, there is much that can be learned from archives who have already piloted or moved to use of cloud storage and we've given you six case studies of that uh, linked to the guidance. 
several archives have integrated cloud storage into their digital preservation activities already and have done so successfully. And again, we profile some of that uh, experience in the case studies and the guidance and indeed in the sections of the guidance itself and hope to do more in terms of the next set of updates in terms of the practice from the, the pilots which are currently running uh, in some of the case study sites. So in terms of further information or follow up from the webinar today, uh, you can contact any member of the consultancy team and we expect the TNA guidance on cloud storage and preservation will be published on the TNA website. We have now reached formally the point of the actual presentation, concluding the presentation itself and we're open to questions. First of all, do you have any recommendations for cloud service providers? Um, we didn't put specific recommendations into the guidance. What we've done is provided the information and series of suggestions about how you might approach that, both in terms of procurement and what is there. Um, obviously, we've provided guidance which is for the whole of the archive sector and there are very differing needs across uh, the sector, so we felt it was inappropriate to do uh, specific individual recommendations. Next question. You mentioned the UCL case study with Duraspace, but said Duraspace is only in the US at present. In terms of uh, support, the support, customer support, that's true, but it is available should some, if somebody wished to, to particularly to test it. And that was done in a project called the Kindura Project at UCL with partners at STFC for research data management. So uh, it has been used in one pilot implementation. And I believe uh, Duraspace is thinking about whether it may launch uh, a supported service in in the UK. Paul, did you want, perhaps, would you want to say anything else about uh, Duraspace or DuraCloud? Yes, absolutely. Um, the the Duraspace example that Neil mentioned there is running on Amazon's cloud service. And Amazon has data centers in various places around the world, um, several in the United States. There's one in Dublin which serves the European market and then others in other places. And the point about Duraspace only being available in the U.S. is that it's currently only operating out of Amazon's U.S.-based data centers. But of course, because they're in the cloud, they're accessible from anywhere in the world. Um, there might be people, data protection reasons, for example, who would want to be using that service from a European data center, which would be in Dublin, and Duraspace aren't currently running out of that data center. But they are looking at whether or not there's enough demand. And we have another question here following on from that, which is probably one then I can pass over to Andrew to comment on, uh, with regards to storing sensitive or confidential material which is likely to be encrypted, have your case studies shown that specialist providers are able to perform preservation actions characterization on this type of material? Now I think I'm going to split that into two. I thought it might be sensible perhaps to say something about the storage issues, Andrew, as we've been talking about data centers in different jurisdictions. Uh, there's Paul 
mention. Do you want to say something just quickly about that, and then I'll come back to the other points on this question? Well, I mean, clearly, if you are using cloud services, you're raising a number of sort of risks. First of all, the risk of outsourcing generally, uh, which many organizations will be aware of from uh, other aspects of their service. Once you start to outsource services, you have to be thinking about the risks and liabilities that you want to perhaps place on the service provider that in, in that sense you're outsourcing the risks and liabilities. Um, and that may involve in terms of things like sensitive data, um, placing responsibility for meeting legal requirements for data protection for other forms of security, or simply having the ability to audit those kinds of processes um, with service providers. So, I mean, there's, there's that sort of general approach, and I think one of the things we've seen is that a number of organizations are treating uh, the use of cloud services as another form of outsourcing, and so they will, they will approach that using the same kind of checklist, the same kind of questioning that they use for standard outsourcing. There is then the issue of offshoring with the cloud. I mean, it may be very difficult um, to identify exactly where the data is being stored. Um, some cloud services now explicitly say that they will store their data within the European Union, and that may help. Um, a lot of cloud services, however, may um, themselves buy in storage, and in those circumstances, following the sort of the chain of provision where that provision is actually being hosted, uh, may be difficult. And again, these are the kinds of questions that need to be asked before entering into uh, agreements with services. Um, can you meet our security requirements? Can you meet our requirements for data protection? Are you processing in Europe? If you're not processing in Europe, are you processing in, in a jurisdiction which meets European requirements? If you're not processing in jurisdictions which meet European requirements, can we build in contractually protections and so on? And I think there's a linked question here as well as a number of questions which are similar. Perhaps I might ask Paul to come in as well, as there's a question, there has been a perception of security issues surrounding storing restricted data in the cloud. What does the panel think of such issues? Paul, do you want to say a little bit more perhaps about security in the cloud and service providers? It's one of, one of those uh, difficult questions. Um, but there are a multitude of answers there, but I think one thing that's very important to say up front is that there is no reason at all that a cloud-based service cannot be as secure or even more secure than anything you could do in your own data center. Um, the large cloud providers have dedicated teams of security professionals that you can't afford to employ. They have physical security that you can't afford to build. And so provided that they're following some of the standards and processes and things that Neil touched on earlier and can demonstrate that they're doing that, then they are a viable option to look at. 
Um, there's a lot of perception that the cloud is not secure. And while there are, of course, examples where that is true, um, there is nothing inherently insecure about the cloud or a cloud-based service. Okay, we have another question here around um, have you been able to consider the impact of different levels of access in the guidance and how this affects costs and the level and type of service provided? Um, we have, I guess, several sort of examples of that in the case studies and we um, cover it also to some degree in the guidance around different levels of access in terms of security requirements and how um, some of the archives have implement, implemented their services as a result. So, for example, the parliamentary archives um, retained um, only put um, public, what they called um, public access material into the cloud, uh, public level, not requiring any and more secure material is still held on their local storage. Um, I'm trying to think of other ways that you could imp interpret the question about impact of different levels of access in the guidance. Obviously that affects costs to some degree and the levels and type of service provided, but I think probably there isn't much more that we could say at this stage unless other panelists. Paul, would you want to perhaps add on that? I, I guess there's a general point there about what the data is being put in the cloud for. If it's being put there for storage or preservation, then clearly there are rather low-level requirements in terms of you know, the amount of bandwidth it might need or the number of web servers that need to fit in front of it, um, whereas it was a, perhaps a very high-profile collection that was being put in the cloud, and one of the reasons it was being put there was for public access, then that may have implications in terms of the cost you're going to pay for bandwidth, the cost you're going to pay for you know, things like load balancers and multiple web servers when it when Amazon is today program talking about the launch of this new project. You know, those sorts of things need to be thought through, but in exactly the same way you would need to think them through if you were hosting it anywhere else. Could I Sorry. interject there? I yeah, mean, yeah, in terms of the legal issues, I mean, clearly it's going to make a difference if you are running an archive which is more or less solely for preservation purposes and one where you're intending to let um, a larger subset of people or even the general public access those those collections. If you're letting the general public access those collections, you do then bring in issues such as uh, intellectual property. Have you got all the necessary permissions for making um, works available um, to the public, whether that's through the cloud or through other means. In other words, you may need to revisit the permissions that you have to ensure that they cover the circumstances in which you would be making the material available. You would need to consider also the any potential risks with regard to data protection. And finally, if you are archiving material um, that where there may be risks that people might consider statements in the material to be defamatory, you may also want to think about what data is being placed in the cloud and how you are going to retrieve data should you need to. Whose responsibility for taking material down will it be? Will it be yours, the archive, or the cloud service? 
Okay, um, looking at other areas of questions, uh, we have a question, what is a community cloud or an example of one? Paul, do you want to chip in perhaps with some examples? Yes, a community cloud is, is one of the terms that is used for where a group of like-minded organizations come together, um, perhaps to set up a common specification for, for a service or to buy it jointly. Um, so I guess the Welsh example in one of the case studies is, is perhaps a community cloud where um, the, the National Archive and a number of local authority archives are coming together shared specification, shared set of services, um, sharing the cost essentially, sharing the risk, um, but also sharing the benefits. So community clouds tend to be in areas where there are either particular legal issues, um, you know, the, the health sector or education or something like that, where there are particular set of accreditations that need to be um, need to be sought. So a community cloud might be quite an effective model for the for archives to follow, especially for individual local authority archives, perhaps aren't large enough to procure or build anything on their own. In terms of types of cloud provision, we have another question. Are there any examples in the case studies of institutions adopting a hybrid approach to digital preservation and access, using cloud storage for preservation copies and local storage for access copies? I'm just trying to think whether they follow that specific um, breakdown. I think we have examples, obviously, of hybrid approaches. Um, certainly, the parliamentary archives, as I mentioned earlier, do combine um, cloud storage with local storage. It's it's entirely up to you, of course, how how you might implement. Um, your, your selection, uh, if you wanted to use the cloud for, for preservation-only copies or whether you wanted to use it for uh, access material and access services if that's provided. Another question, can you foresee any other organizational threats of using cloud in the longer term? You mentioned financial and legal aspects, but are there any other potential challenges? Oh, an interesting question. Um, shall I just throw that open to the other presenters before I come well, back to that moment? I think th there's a general perception, perhaps more in the commercial sphere than in the public sector, but there's this sort of nagging doubt that moving towards cloud services may, may lead to de-skilling in the organization. So your IT staff arguably have less to do, and therefore you don't employ them anymore. Um, and when the cloud service that you had outsourced everything to either winds up or raises their prices or moves off in a completely different direction that doesn't suit you, you don't actually have the skills in-house anymore to cope and to respond. Um, it's an argument that's been made for outsourcing more generally. Um, I think you just need to be cautious. You need to be aware that you do have an exit strategy from whatever outsourcing provider you choose and you do retain some capability in this, either to run things or at least to make intelligent decisions about where things should run. Uh, we've got a question, thinking of Wales, the Dorset case study, should we be looking at archive service, services, regional or national solutions? 
does size matter in establishing terms, charges and conditions with providers? I think, perhaps shall I start a response to that? I certainly think scale makes a difference, obviously in terms of the providers. The, the bigger the market, probably the easier it is for them to offer. Um, if you like, finally, cost is solutions um, and cost reductions. I think one of the issues with any regional or national solution is the diversity, perhaps, of need and getting consortia agreements and working practices together, which would be effective. So certainly, I think, perhaps, regional and national, even potentially national solutions in the longer term may be um, quite important in thinking about community archive solutions, but we're not quite there yet. Um, as I mentioned, we have one example of the, the pilot case study in Wales, but Emma or Paul, do you want to talk at all about regional or national solutions in this space? Well, I, I would you know, echo what you said essentially, Neil, that scale clearly does have value in, the, in this context. Um, it's much easier for the National Archives on behalf of the UK archival sector or, or whatever it may be to have a conversation with Amazon than it is for a very small local authority in a place that Amazon have never heard of to have that conversation with them. So around um, around discounts, around guarantees um, of service, those sorts of things. Um, I think if if an individual archive went to Amazon, they would be told, you know, here's the list, here's the list of services, pick one. Um, the UK archival sector might be able to have a more nuanced conversation. Okay, I've had clarification about the uh, digital rights management questions. So it's relating to security and access, uh, multiple levels of access to the content and intellectual property to digital objects. In other words, that not all the content is wide open access. And yes, it, it is the case that service providers can support uh, a range, multiple levels of access control to the content. It doesn't have to be all wide open access. Um, but obviously the issue there perhaps is the sort of material and the level of security that may need to be imp uh, implemented and certified for some content, particularly sensitive material. Uh, I've got a question. Could you say more about the economics budgetary issues of cloud? Um, pay as you go means if you stop paying, then content is at risk. Endowment models, paid up models, ring fence budgets, etc. Uh, yes, I think we can point to a number of things from the guidance. Um, in terms of the Oxford University case study, um, they have examples of a charging policy which uh, specifically for research data and that sort of material where there is a research grant about how that may be costed. And that provides a, a model for endowing uh, that content being held on to for a set period or indeed um, in perpetuity as part of the collections. 
Um, also, there are different models uh, from some of the service providers. So, for example, Archivum uh, gives you some options, including pay-as-you-go, but also a paid-up model um, for 10 or 20 years of storage if you wanted to make up an upfront payment. So, there are a number of uh, ways that you can approach some of the funding issues. Um, and options which are available there, both from service providers or how you might choose to establish the funding yourselves. Again, any other perhaps comments on that, the funding side? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a perception, at least amongst the public bank providers, that you know, once we pay it on your credit card kind of thing, um, which clearly is hugely convenient if you're just starting or if you don't know quite how much capacity you need. Um, but that sort of operational expenditure model is much harder perhaps to budget for over the long term. We're much more interested in a, in a sustainable, predictable capital expense. Um, and the cloud providers, as they moved to embrace more enterprise type workloads, recognize that. And they are open to, to finding you know, longer term arrangements, upfront payments, uh, and all these sorts of things as Neil mentioned. Um, however, as with anything else, if you stop paying for it, then yeah, you, you won't have access to it anymore. Um, but you would know that you're going to stop paying um, for whatever reason, and then you would pull the data back down before you, your contract expired. Um, so there, there are various ways around it. There are various ways to work through it. Um, but the sort of the flexibility of cloud-based billing is perhaps less of an issue, less of an advantage in this space than it is in some of the other areas where cloud is perhaps more commonly used. Okay, I've got another legal, very specific legal one here for you, Andrew. In his ruling, US Magistrate Judge James Francis found that big ISPs, including name brands, Microsoft and Google, must comply with valid warrants to turn over customer information, including emails, even if that material resides in data centers outside the US, according to several reports. Now, do you want to give us an update there, Andrew? I don't know if you're aware of that. Well, I, I think it, it's, it's fairly clear that the US legal system, the US authorities regard material that is, as it were, under the control of or in the hands of US companies, wherever it is based in the world, may be subject to um, access by uh, US law enforcement or um, US intelligence agencies. And I think that's become quite clear to us. Um, even if the material is held in a data center in the EU, um, or even if it is being transferred between uh, entities within the EU, as we saw with um, SWIFT, the interbank, European interbank, an international interbank service, um, if that organization has assets in the United States, um, sanctions can be taken against them if they don't comply with the US legal system. Um, the difficulty, I think, these days in the IT sector is finding companies that don't have connections with particular jurisdictions uh, like the United States and therefore are 
wholly able to resist that kind of uh, legal action. So I guess I guess the bottom line is, um, as I suppose some of the revelations we've seen um, from the Snowden affair suggests, is that your your data may be accessible if it is held by a U.S. company, regardless of where that data is held in the world. And even if it isn't held by a U.S. company, if it's held by a U.K. company, it may be accessible depending on the arrangements that are made between governments. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Um, another question here um, for community clouds: Would you have any recommendations for sharing the content with a service provider as a source of generating revenue and providing a long-term archival solution? I think probably my answer to that would be obviously community clouds are we're only just emerging, it may be too early to say what sort of options might be there, or well, certainly in terms of recommendations for um, some of that generating revenue uh, options, um, but clearly they potentially are there for exploration. I, what we could say, it, as you said, it might be worth exploring. Um, I wonder how much any of the providers would would consider the content you were sharing to be worth, you know, in terms of a, a quid pro quo kind of relationship. But it's it's certainly worth looking at, provided you have the appropriate right to, to do so. Okay. Well, we're coming up to the scheduled uh, endpoint of the uh, webinar at half past one. Thank you for all your questions the guidance and the case studies, uh, which will be issued shortly by uh, the TNA, will obviously provide uh, much more detail, hopefully through uh, food for thought as well, uh, for archives and others in the sector. And as I mentioned earlier, we're very happy to take any questions you may have via email and to respond to them. So once again, thank you all for joining us, and we will now draw the webinar to a close. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.